Hello, welcome to Why Not Me. In life, we face many trials and obstacles, many challenges, and in the thick of it, we can be tempted to think, why me? But every obstacle presents an opportunity and every trial can bring triumph. So I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of, why not me? When, when in the middle of it, when things are tough, look around and think, why not me? It's, it's happening for a purpose. And then when success is at your doorstep and all you have to do is open it, you may find yourself hesitating, questioning, is this for me? Do I deserve this? And I want to encourage you to adapt a mindset of why not me? Throw the door open wide, shout to the world, why not me? Embrace your success. I'm your coach, Todd Halls. I'm grateful to have you on this journey. Welcome to Why Not Me. Hello, hello. Welcome to Why Not Me, turning trials into triumphs, seeking and embracing success. I'm your host, Coach Todd Halls, and I'm super, super excited to be here. I'm grateful for all of you tuning in today. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope this adds some value to you. I'm very excited uh, to introduce our guest and grateful for his time. Our guest today, Andrew Heaton, he's a comedian. He's an author, uh, author of three best-selling political satire books. He's a podcast host. Um, his, his main show is called The Political Orphanage. Um, there's, there's a lot to it. I can't wait to, uh, to have them unpack that for us a little bit. Andrew, in addition to that, is there anything our listeners should know as we get started? I think you nailed it. Yeah, I'm a snappy dresser, comedian, author, and podcast host. That that pretty well covers it. That's it. Cool, cool. So, folks, we obviously we're not on video, but Andrew, it, I'll verify. He's a snappy dresser. He showed up for for mm-hmm. the podcast. Uh, sport coat on, um, with a pop of color in the pocket, the kerchief, everything mm-hmm. dialed in. So, Andrew, consummate professional. Uh, that's I, I was even if this is not being recorded, I want Todd to know. That I rocked up in fine form. <laughs> I will remember, with, without a doubt. Uh, so, Andrew, what? How how long, if you can? How how long have you been uh, an author? Like, when did you first start writing? I started writing a long time ago. Uh, I mean, I started writing fiction for fun when I was in middle school and would write short stories. I wrote my first novel when I was in high school, which I don't think I'll ever publish. It's not very good. It's good for a 17-year-old high school student, but I don't think it's very good by 38-year-old man standards, so it'll probably remain in the trunk. That's when I when I first wrote a book, and then um, wrote a book when I was in college, which was my first published novel called Frank Got Abducted, and then wrote a, a another funny novel called Happier as Werewolves, and uh, then kind of kept up with it. I, I recently had a short story collection come out called Inappropriately Human, 21 Short Stories, and uh, best-selling political satire that you alluded to, which is laughter is better than communism. And uh, I also, uh, last year, I had my most commercially successful book come out, which is a a funny coffee table book called Los Angeles is Hideous, Poems About an Ugly City. And uh, so I, by, by my rate, I think I'm, I'm doing about a book a year right now. And I think I'll probably keep that up indefinitely until, until Congress makes me stop. That's a, that's a pretty good pace. So yeah, let's, let's hope that the income level continues to increase with it. I've only started making money at it in the last two years. So I'm, I'm hoping that that is a, the beginning of a trend rather than a peak. So you're going to be one of those stories that when, when people look back, they're going to say, man, he just appeared out of nowhere. Overnight success. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> Long night, oh. friends. A very long night. <laughs> About a 20-year night. But you know, I, I think though with like writing, 
writing in particular is one of those things where you you really must innately enjoy it if you're going to keep doing it. Uh, like you you could conceivably make you could make decent money writing books, but you would have to do it. Um, you'd have to be extremely commercially focused and know what is going to sell and why is it going to sell and and figure out how to reduce your labor. There would be a way to do it, but you may not enjoy doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just going to write novels or you're going to write nonfiction books, I've got a book I've been working on for three years now about tribalism and groupthink and, and uh, so on and so forth. If you're going to press on with that, it is such a vastly dispiriting exercise uh, to engage in. Uh, you were you were by yourself in a, in a box cranking out stuff that no one knows about for about a year. And, uh, and then even if you're getting the, the nice compliments and things afterwards and you're, and people are buying the book is still probably not worth your time. Like it would still probably be more economically advantageous to just grow potatoes in your backyard. So all of that's okay. Cause there's great psychic utility that comes out of it. I really enjoy writing it. I, I feel like it's a, a wonderful way to make human connections with people and, and get ideas out there. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm very proud to have these books on my coffee table and, and can point to them. Um, but you got to love doing it. Because if you don't love doing it, I don't think it's very rare for somebody to get over that hump where they their first book is just a runaway success. And the rest of their life, they're, they're, people are throwing money and awards at them. I, I think you're probably going to have to slog through a lot of lesser functions before you get to that point, if ever. So it sounds an awful lot like a lot of small businesses. Mm-hmm. As, as you've described it, it's um, you, you plant your seeds, you water, you nurture, you put in your dues, you and create mm-hmm. awareness. Um, you know, when you talked about initially about just being a viable author and you described it like you have to know what the market wants, you have to produce a product that fits that. Um, mm-hmm. And I've never really thought of writing as a as a as a business. It, it always seems to have its own thing like, oh, they're an author. But really, mm-hmm. uh, you've described a business. Well, the the. The majority of authors out there, and, and I, and when I say authors, I mean anybody that's written a book. I, I'm not attaching a, a, a price tag or success to this. Just someone who's. And by the way, if you've written a book, props to you. Sometimes people will email me and they'll say, "I wrote a book, but I couldn't get it published or anything." If you've written a book, that's an accomplishment in and of itself, and you should go buy yourself a big dinner. It's very difficult to do that. Uh, that being said, most people are writing the book and then hoping they can get it published. So they're they're pursuing their passion with the book. They really want to write this space fantasy about robot crickets that fall in love, whatever the thing is, right? And then they're like, maybe at that point, other people will will love my writing too. That that tends to be what happens. Uh, where the commercial application comes in is uh, if you can identify, oh, that book doesn't sell very well. So one of my friends who's a very successful author, uh, he writes thrillers. He'd, write, he'd rather write science fiction, but um, science fiction has more, this is very much a business angle, Todd. Um, science fiction has more authors competing in it than uh, thrillers do, and it also has a lower it has a lower ceiling of what you can conceivably make. Mm. So you've you've got more competition in the field, and the top science fiction authors are not making as much as the top thriller authors, and there are fewer thriller authors. So my friend logically went, well, then I'm going to write thrillers, and maybe I'll put in a robot occasionally. But he's writing thrillers, right? Um, one of the things that I learned over the last year, uh, the the short story collection. Took a lot of time. It took me about ten years to write that off and on, uh, where I, I would come up with an interesting idea. I really like um, the Twilight Zone. I really like premise-based fiction, where particularly in sci-fi, where you're taking some interesting thing and going, let's let's understand humanity by isolating this element of it and putting it in a weird situation. I love doing that, but it takes a long time. It's a lot of effort. Uh, whereas the funny book I wrote, Los Angeles is hideous, that took. I don't know, three weeks and 60 milligrams of Adderall. It wasn't that much of a, 
that much of a time commitment, but it sold way more. And I think the reason for that is uh, it's nonfiction, which is easier to sell than fiction is because with fiction, um, typically you, you need, it's a, it's, you're making a seven to nine hour high, high energy level commitment um, to read through a book. So you're, you're not very apt to just read a book based on the title or the premise with fiction. You're, you, you kind of want to know who the author is, other authors that like the author have it recommended by friends, whereas nonfiction, you can go, that seems like an interesting premise. And with that funny coffee table book I wrote, Los Angeles is Hideous, you literally have everything you need to know about it in the title. You know I'm going to be making fun of Los Angeles, and you know it's going to be funny. And uh, as a result, it, it sold way easier because people went, oh, that's funny. I'll, I'll give that to my dumb nephew who's moving out to LA, or I'll put it on my coffee table or whatever. Uh, it was also a lot easier to promote on shows, I found. Um, it's harder for me to call up uh, radio shows and television shows and go, hey, I'm a charming writer. I wrote this this short story collection over a deck. Do you like robots? Done, right? But if I come in and I'm like, hey, do you hate Los Angeles? Do you want me as a comedian to come in and slag on it? Turns out everyone in America outside of Los Angeles hates Los Angeles. And about half of Los Angeles hates Los Angeles. So there were lots of people that were happy to talk to me about that. And I, I finished that project and went, oh my, that was considerably more money than the other ones with considerably less effort. And so uh, I humor books might be a thing I do more frequently moving forward because I, I think that the ratio is a little bit better. But in, in that capacity, Todd, you're right. It, it is a business. And, and if you're looking to make money at it, you do absolutely have to, uh, I think, factor that into some extent. Otherwise, you're just buying a lottery ticket and hoping maybe your book will turn into J.K. Rowling, which it probably won't. <laughs> probably not. But you never know. So what do you do? Um, and I've got, a, I've got thoughts on this myself. But what do you do or do you ever run into writer's block? Uh, yes, I do. Um, the, the bigger thing that happens to me. So when, when I'm, when I'm writing books, those are, uh, I, I am 90% in the passion project. I'm going to do this for fun. Hopefully I make money on it camp. So I, there's a little bit of consideration that goes into it, but I'm largely doing it for fun. Uh, so that I, I tend to do, um, when I have time and I have the inclination and I'm not doing as much fiction as I used to, cause it's a lot more intensive to do fiction. You have to keep a lot of things in your head. Uh, where I find that I get writer's block is in my day job. So uh, I, my day job is I host a program called the Political Orphanage, which is um, a, a policy and ideas analysis show for people that are tired of the red team versus blue team thing. So I will go in and I will try to really explore stuff, but I am ethnically a comedian. Uh, the, the problem is I'm not quite funny enough to make a full-time living as a comedian, but I'm real funny as a policy analyst. I'm probably the funny, funniest policy analyst working, but I'm not a very good stand-up comedian. Uh, and so that, that fits me pretty well. Um, so a lot of the time I'll be writing a script for that show and I might be doing, um, left brain, uh, left brain deductive reasoning and policy analysis is something that I can pretty much do regardless of mood, unless I am severely depressed. Writing comedy is a lot harder to do, I find. R writing comedy is very difficult to do if I am in a bad mood and I'm tired. Uh, comedy tends to, to happen spontaneously when you're in a good mood and because I'm an extrovert when I'm interacting with people and I'm socially sated. So that I find difficult to do. If I'm going to sit down, like a lot of the time what I do in my program is I'll, I'll do the, the, the meat of the interview up top, but then I'll do a sketch at the end or I'll do a, a, a fake ad. I've been doing those for years where... Um, since my show is is uh, funded by Patreon, I will make up show sponsors that are absurd, and I'll I'll write a, a, basically a sketch for them that's a parody commercial. And a lot of the time, I just I don't have an Emmy to write it that day, and I, I can feel it. I, I have enough uh, wherewithal and enough 
you know, years honed comedy instincts that I can write something bare bones down, but I'm not going to get that, um, that ploof of lateral thinking where my brain goes into crazy right brain mode. Uh, I can always flip the switch on left brain mode. I find right brain modes a lot more elusive. And so, uh, what I can do to some extent is I know if I boost my mood, I'm going to be more apt to do that. And the other thing I do is I keep a stack of Dave Barry books near me. I think Dave Barry is a national treasure. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning humorist that wrote for the Miami Herald for years. The man is a hero of mine. I have a framed picture of him in my office right now. Very funny guy. And I I find that whatever kind of thing I am writing, I can kind of prime my brain by reading the sort of person I want to emulate. And it's almost like kickstarting the brain or like having um, having it be guided by somebody else until it sort of picks up the rhythm. And so I find that that can help to some extent. So, yeah, I, it's almost like an ignition system to, to read. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got yeah. It. And I, I, find, I think for a lot of, a lot of writers, what they'll do. So like if, if you wanted to sit down and write a, uh, a nonfiction book or a fiction book, what I would recommend is take Stephen King's advice, uh, which is commit to writing a thousand words every day of the work week. Mm-hmm. So pick, most authors work in the morning. I'm a night owl. So I tend to do it at night. Um, actually it's a little bit more, I, I tend to do nonfiction in the morning. I tend to do fiction at night. I find that my left brain is serviceable in the morning. Uh, my right brain does not tend to wake up until 9 PM or so. That's kind of its, its apex. Uh, <clears throat> but the key thing is you're writing a thousand words a day. And what that does is both it, it cranks out the book at a regular pace, but really what you're doing is you are, uh, tricking your subconscious mind into focusing on that. Cause if you're, if you're writing it piecemeal where you're, you're doing it when you have a good idea, your brain has so much, particularly the older we get as adults, we have so many things on our plates mm. that our, our brains are focusing on all this. Whereas if you've got a thousand words a day, you're doing it. Um, some days you're going to sit down and it's going to be a struggle and you're going to, you're going to sweat blood writing these thousand words and they suck. And you're going to come back the following day and redo the whole thing that happens all the time. But what also happens is you will sit down and you will, to your pleasant surprise, discover that your brain has been thinking about this on a subconscious level the whole last day. And when you sit down, words pour out of you and you'll bang out 6,000 words in a night. Uh, and so, um, that, that I, I would recommend that for a way for people to do it. And when, when you are confronted with writer's block, something that I think would work for everybody, regardless of what you're doing is just to type, like get, get a book you enjoy, uh, that, that is of the mold of the thing you want to write and literally just write verbatim, type verbatim what that author has done. Cause that's, really a good way to get your brain trained on it. And also your brain's going to be irritated with you for transcribing something already on a paper and your brain's like a lazy toddler. And so if you basically go, Hey, you don't have to write anything. You can just write this transcription thing. If you want, it'll eventually go, hold on now. I got some ideas. I can, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll take a whack at this. It's amazing how that switch, the, the, how the brain works and and you mentioned this this lazy toddler um yeah it doesn't it it, it gets irritated with you and finally it gives in says all right we'll we'll do it that way but we're still going to do it my way type thing yeah so yeah and and on the flip side like i'm i'm having to get better at just sort of realizing that i do have limited bandwidth i do have limited energy uh i think that we we still have this weird like kind of lingering prussian industrial revolution kind of culture uh, in America where uh, you sit down at your desk at 9 a.m. and you work consistently 
Uh, you have two 15-minute breaks and a lunch break, and then you leave at 5 p.m. And, uh, and you are going to work at 100% optimal capacity that entire time, probably because you're drinking stimulants, maybe because you're smoking, right? And in, in reality, it just it doesn't work that way, particularly... Um, like me, I, I'm self-employed. My main job is hosting the Political Orphanage, that podcast. And what I found is, uh, I will say, uh, like two weeks ago, um, I did a, a deep dive on Roe v. Wade. I'm going to make your show real awkward up top, Todd. I'm going to just jump into this. Uh, but basically, what I wanted to do was, I was like, okay, the, the the news had just come out that the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I went, everybody I know has very strong opinions on abortion. Very few people I know actually knows what this case is about. And, and I, I know how public or not, I know how political media works. We're about to have all the partisans come out and scream talking points at each other. So what I did was I took two weeks and I read through Roe versus Wade and I read through Dobbs v. Jackson. I called up attorney friends to talk to them about if I understood the concept of substantive due process. I called a federal judge who told me that it, it's substan- substantive and not substantive, as I had been saying, he crushed my pronunciation. I really did this really deep dive on it to do this thorough analysis. And then I wrote the script. By the time I got to like Thursday of the week that came out, I was just done. And and I I had to kind of go, I I am not going to be, I'm not going to be uh output productive at this point. Um uh and I and I can kind of now realize like uh Fridays I structure my week to where if someone needs to call me and all I have to do is show up, I try to do that on Fridays because I know that that's going to be the lowest ebb of energy I have in the week. And um Thursdays might be a good like light reading day if I've got stuff to catch up on because I find that that takes a, a reasonably limited amount of energy that I need to expend. But I I kind of have to I have to indulge the toddler to some extent because eventually it's just going to cry and lay on the floor and you you it's, you're not going to be able to to push it beyond a certain level. <clears throat> well, next time we do this, I'm scheduling it for a Monday because I said <laughs> not Thursday or Friday. <laughs> I'm okay. You're all right. You're all right. I'm in fine form right now. <laughs> you. From talking, you've got pretty incredible, it would seem, or unusual self awareness. Um, as you've talked, thank yeah, you. As you've talked about energy levels and knowing, it, hey, this is a good time to maybe write comedy, or maybe it isn't, and just how you how you function, how you operate, where your energy is at. And I don't, I don't hear people articulate that very often. So my question mm-hmm. is, how did you develop this? Well, first of all, thank you. And uh, good question. Um, it's been a slow process, uh, but I think um, it helps that I am simultaneously really interested in how people work. I'm just I'm interested in human beings. Uh, I'm also self-absorbed, which helps. <laughs> so I'm, I'm paying attention to myself, and uh, I also have a disposition which wants to. By nature, I wish to create systems and optimize them. So I'm 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 very organized in my life, and and I'm constantly looking for, you know, how do I how do I make my day as happy as it can be, or alternately, how do I make my day as productive as it can be, and and kind of doing that bit by bit. Uh, a really big um, epiphany that I think kind of launched all of that happened right after I graduated from college, and this was probably not epiphanal for everybody listening to you, but it was epiphanal for me at the time. Uh, I, I had uh, moved to Oxford, um, Oxford, England. I was working in Oxford uh, right out of college. Uh, I happened to be living with a um, an ex priest. Nothing bad, by the way. He just he just retired, and became a consultant. Nothing nothing weird happened. Uh, nice guy. Uh, and thanks for qualifying. Uh, I, w- 
I was working as a data uh, data entry guy. So I was doing the thing where I'm just typing other people's stuff all day. And I hated it. And I told him just how, how tired I was constantly and how sad I was constantly. And he went, well, are you an extrovert or an introvert? And I went, I, I used what I think is the older dumb definition of extrovert, which fortunately we've now kind of started uh, getting a, a putting away. Uh, that that colloquially used to mean, are you gregarious or are you shy? Which is not uh, the the difference between extrovert and introvert. Uh, and I said, well, I'm an extrovert because I'm very gregarious. And he went, well, that's not what extrovert means. Uh, and it's and shy is not what introvert means. He said extroverts just derive their energy from other people, and introverts self generate their energy. So do you tend to generate your own energy, or do you tend to um, get energy from interacting with people. And I was like, oh, I'm like a 12 out of 10, whatever that first one was where I have to interact with people. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever thought about that. Uh, I had, um, I, I am now a friendly, low wattage, agnostic, secular guy, but I used to be very religious and I was Eastern Orthodox. And you read these books by monks in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And they, they tend to talk about how the ideal life is one of silent contemplation with the least amount of personal interaction possible. And so at the time I was reading that going, well, I must be kind of screwed up because I want to talk to people all the time. And I can now look at that and go, oh, those guys were super introverts. And uh, that made total sense for them. And I, I, it did not make sense for me to take this life advice from somebody that had no understanding of psychology and apply it to me. It made more sense to go with psychology. And so I looked into extrovert versus introvert. Um, you know, and, and and a lot of those other dichotomies, uh, morning person versus night person, uh, and and things like that. And I'm constantly trying to identify how I can just be be better at what I'm doing, be more efficacious, uh, optimize, and um, and and be more productive. The the one that I've had to work on the last couple of years, which I imagine a lot of your uh, listeners would resonate with, Todd, is now that I'm self-employed, I have to very frequently remind myself that literally no one cares about the input or the hours that I do in my job. Uh, I, I, I write books, I do stand-up comedy, and I host a podcast. No one cares what time I work up in the morning. Uh, for two years, I was afraid, to some extent, I was afraid to go out during the day for fear the listener of the show would see me and go, hey, why aren't you at your desk working? I pay you to do that. They don't care. They'd be delighted to see me. We'd probably get coffee and eat donuts. Uh, and and I've, I've had to now shift my mind and go, okay, it really doesn't matter how long I'm sitting at the desk. It matters how much stuff I'm getting done. It matters what the output is. And so if, I, if I'm if i going to go um, hang out with my friends and go get a bunch of lunches this week because I am an extrovert and I need to do that, uh, and the result of that is that the stuff I'm writing is better, it's happier, uh, I'm higher energy, and I write more stuff, then that is more optimal for my job and for my mental health than it would be for me to just sit at my desk and focus on the job. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm now having to kind of like really process that and, and let it, let it sink into my bones and negate all the old Protestant farmer guilt that I have, that I've inherited from my part of the country. Well, it's, it's almost like, and I think you mentioned it, was it Prussian industrialist culture, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and as you're describing this, like, Oh, if I'm seen out, they're going to realize I'm not working. And it's almost like that's, it's so ingrained, even, even for somebody that's not in that position. Right. But it's like, Oh, I should be working. It's between nine and five. And I had my 15 minute mm -hmm. break. So, uh, I, I did a, a, a two day, uh, call it a self retreat and, mm -hmm. um, left <clears throat> shut phone off, shut everything down. Just like, no, just, just try to get quiet. And when I found mm -hmm. myself 
doing was uh, there was a clock in the cabin I was staying at. I'd look at the clock and, and think, oh, I should get going. And then I'd get up and do something. Or, oh, I should make breakfast now. And it's like, it took, it was a full day into it. The next morning, I, I happened to be on this boardwalk watching a cardinal, right? Just enjoying nature. And this thought occurred to me, oh, I should get going. And I, I realized, well, where do I have to go? And what does it, right. like, can't I just be for, for a few minutes? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm not sure how, well, this ties into what you're saying a little bit. It's so ingrained in you know the Protestant farmer, like, oh, it's daylight, yeah. time to go to work. We should get this done. Yep. And I, I think we get it both barrels too. Like me, me being a creative person, something that I, I think is happening with me that I'm now having to uh, gently release the, the bolts on is I am a comedian who's a professional gas bag and, and writer. Everything I do is frivolous. Uh, and uh, I come from a family of absurdly practical, hardworking people. All of my living family members are either in farming, are judges, or are in construction. None of these are whimsical pursuits. These are hardworking pursuits that require focus and work ethic. And I went, I am going to write funny coffee table books and talk to authors about ideas. And I, I think that what I have done as a result of that is because it feels so frivolous and it feels so, um, it, it, it just, it feels like, uh, I, I frivolous, it's very frivolous feeling. I think I compensate by going, yeah, but I work really hard at it. Like if I talk to my proper adult relatives that, you know, actually have dirt under their fingernails or a 401k, I can complain to them about the lack of sleep and that way they know it's a real job. Right. And I'm, I'm having to realize too, that they don't really care. They're, they're rooting for me. They're not they're, They don't think I'm a fraud. They don't think that I'm, I'm doing it to avoid work. They understand that I'm a hard worker. Uh, and, um, the other thing too, that I think all of us learned, regardless of whether you're creative or self-employed or whatever your profession is, I, I think one of the benefits that came out of lockdown and, uh, out of, out of the pandemic was it did really force all of us to take a hot minute and reassess our priorities. Mm. And um, I, I know that it's very easy for me to just default on work uh, whenever I have free time, because uh, I've always got a bunch of projects to work on. And uh, at the beginning of lockdown, I called one of my friends and I was talking to him and I went, I, I feel worthless. I have done nothing productive today. And he went, well, what have you done? It's maybe one o'clock in the afternoon. And I went, I, I haven't done any work. I, uh, I, I, uh, I did a, like a remote coffee hour with some of my friends from DC. And then I ca- I talked to my dad on the phone. I emailed some of my teachers from high school to make sure they're okay. And then I like, I just joked around with a buddy from Scotland. I did nothing. And, and he took a deep breath and he went, I mean, it sounds like you just spent your day talking to people you love. And, and it, it blew me back. And I went, Oh my God, you're right. Like, uh, that's actually a wonderful thing to do with my time. Uh, it far better. Like I, I try to, uh, uh, remember that now, like if my mom calls me or something, remind myself that the most important thing I'm going to do during the day is to, uh, nurture the relationships in my life. Uh, uh, responding to emails from strangers is secondary to that pursuit. And, and it's very easy. I think for us living in an extremely work-based culture, America likes to think of itself as a family values culture. It's not, it's a work-based culture. Family values is secondary to work in our culture. Uh, and I think it's worth remembering that that is ultimately secondary to the people that you love. If your mom calls you, that's more important than most of the work you're doing, unless you're a surgeon or an air traffic controller or something like that. So as you, for, for you, so a day of talking to people you love, 
does that give you the same energizing effect as actually being with them? Does it, as an, as an extrovert, does that contribute to your energy? Uh, it contributes, but there's various tiers of energy that I've found. Um, so, uh, uh, I, I get a decent amount of energy from what we're doing right now, Todd, because uh, I, I can see your handsome face and I can see you laughing at my jokes and we're talking. And uh, so so that's, it's, it's decent. It's kind of like a, a quarter of a cup of coffee. A full <laughs> cup of coffee would be if you and I were hanging out at Smokey Joe's swapping jokes or whatever, right? Or uh, I get really charged up if I can go be charming in a group. I find that really uh, energizing. Like if I'm, uh, if I'm doing stand-up or better if I'm just at a party, but I have like minor celebrity status and I'm just allowed to be charming. That, that is probably the peak of energy generation, followed by face-to-face -face, uh, interaction. Zoom is the next best thing. After Zoom is uh, just verbal conversations, and at the bottom is texting. And I, I think the reason for this is uh, the difference between our prefrontal cortex and our mammal brain. Uh, I, I defer to your, your neurologists and neurochemists that listen to your program on this, but I, I think I'm onto something here where, as I understand it, our brain is three major components. There's the, the prefrontal cortex, the, the mammal brain and the reptile brain. And the reptile brain is all of the automatic stuff and reflexes, you know, jerking your hand away from a hot stove, breathing, heartbeat, all that kind of thing. Um, the mammal brain is the part that squirts out all the hormones we like. Uh, like dopamine and serotonin and things like that. And the prefrontal cortex is the smart part of our brain that I am engaging in this conversation with you. It handles language. It handles ideas. It, it's the thing that understands the world around us. Well, the, the smart part of my brain knows when I'm looking at a text message that that is from my friend Jeremy and that we are having communication. The mammal part of my brain does not know that. Uh, in the same way that when you go on vacation and you put your dog on the phone, your dog has no idea that you're on the other end of the line. Your dog is smelling the phone. Your dog is wondering why the dog sitter has given them a glass rectangle to sniff. They have no idea because they're using their mammal brain. And I, I think the mammal brain is the one that's in charge of those hormones that are squirting out. And so um, basically you're trying to get as close to direct human interaction as you can for that mammal brain purpose. So like right now, I think my mammal brain kind of knows that you and I are talking, but it doesn't really know it when it comes to like emoticons and, and text messages. And things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Going to switch gears a little bit <clears throat> and talk about the political orphanage, if that's okay. Great. My, my job. Yeah. Work. Cause you a, yeah, <laughs> plug it as much as you want. Hey listeners again, <laughs> I, I host the political orphanage. Check it out. <laughs> well, so I introduced you as a comedian and author. Um, <clears throat> and podcast host, and you referred to the podcast as your day job. Yeah. So you you are a podcast host, and the the primary is called the Political Orphanage. How right. long has yeah, I've got, have you been running the orphanage? I think it's about I think it's about four years old now. Uh, this summer, actually. Um, so it started out as a daily program on a network uh, where I came into a proper place with multiple people and microphones and cameras. It was also a TV show. It got canceled about eight months in. I'm fine. Everything's great. And uh, I, I converted it into a podcast. The, the network that let me go, I'm actually still on good terms with. It was an amicable departure. Um, and they were nice enough to let me keep the RSS feed. And they were also nice enough. Um, uh, I, I did get let go rather suddenly. Uh, and I was like, hey, I'd like to say goodbye to the audience. Like I've, I've spent, you know, doing a daily show is a lot. 
uh, and I'd like to, and they went, yeah, you can, you can do a, a goodbye episode if you'd like, so long as you're not trashing the network. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I don't, I don't like to trash former employers. Um, and I was advised by my friends, uh, immediately start a Patreon account. Uh, because you want to be able to harness the emotions that are about to be unleashed by the audience that said you're leaving. So I went on my last show and I went, hey, the show is ending. Um, I don't know if I want to keep doing political media for the very good reason that political media is horrible and politics is horrible right now. And I don't know if I want to keep doing this with my life. Um, but if I do, I'll be doing it through Patreon. So if you want to encourage me to continue doing this kind of thing, you can go to patreon.com slash Andrew Heaton. My original thought was, Maybe I'm going to make grocery money for the next three weeks until I figure out a real person job or more likely go back to temping or something like that. And it, it was, it, it, people were supportive enough quite early that I was like, well, this isn't quite rent money, but it's definitely more than grocery money. We're approaching rent money level here. So I did it for a few months. And then, you know, about six months in, I went, I can move off my friend's couch. I don't have to be, I don't have to be a uh, quasi homeless anymore. I could, I could actually get a proper adult apartment and towels and things and did that. And then it finally clicked. I was like, oh, this is my job. I thought this was just the sort of temporary thing I was doing until I, I found something more boring and reputable and uh, uh, was able to keep it going and have now been doing it um, full-time independently as my own show uh, because, I, again, I kept the RSS feed. I uh, have been doing it full-time independently for about three years and uh, feel like this last year I've really hit my stride. I've, I've become much more competent at the job. Um, I've become much more confident both in my skills and in um, – the audience itself. Uh, that is to say that I trust the audience a lot more than I used to. Uh, when I when I first started doing it, because it's politics, I was kind of scared to talk about certain subjects. And I was afraid that if I said the wrong thing, because I'm, it's a subscription model, theoretically, everybody could dump me if I quit being entertaining or I, I took some weird hot take that pissed everybody off. And I've, I've learned that uh, my audience uh, is largely there for temperamental reasons. They like that I am earnestly trying to figure things out rather than pushing a partisan agenda. They like that I bring on people that I disagree with to learn from them. And they enjoy being confronted by different ideas. They're not there for uh, confirmation bias. They're there to learn and to think. And they trust me as an honest broker in that regard, even if they disagree with the conclusions that I have. And so I've realized over time that I actually have a lot of leeway uh, where I, I don't have to worry about my audience freaking out and going, wait a minute, you're not a Republican. I thought you were, or I thought you were a Democrat. Like they kind of, that's not why they're there. Uh, and that really frees me up to, I think, do a little better job. So anyway, yeah. And answer to your question, Todd, I've been doing it three or four years. Three or four years. That's uh, that's a pretty good run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I suspect it'll go on for a while now. Uh, I, I can't go into detail, but there's two different outfits that are, have approached me about doing a television show. And so I might be going back into TV and I've been emphatic with both of them. Uh, I am not quitting this podcast because it is a full-time income with a direct lifeline to my own listeners. And it makes no sense for me to abandon that. So I'll, I'll, I'll probably do that unless I become insanely wealthy and have no financial incentive to do it. And then I would still do it. I would just do it you know, twice a month as opposed to once a month because I'd still want to be a gas bag. Um, so I suspect it'll be going on for a while. Certain certain aspects of your personality aren't just going to go away because of a bunch of money is what you're telling me. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing too is like, uh, like, so I used to work for the United States Congress and uh, I, I, uh, I've worked in political media for many years. And I can tell you, there's a lot of folks that um, uh, they need to get out their political thoughts. And, and, it, and, it, and when they don't, it just builds up into these angry tirades. And when they finally get an opportunity to discuss politics, they're really obnoxious. 
because they it's it's this cathartic burst for them. And I'm like, yeah, I'd probably be one of those people if no one was listening to me uh, just wax about what I what I think about Euclidean zoning ordinances. Uh, then it would build up. So I'm like, I need to keep that that conduit open anyway, just so I can I can get all that stuff out of my brain. Yeah. So I understand. That, well, the basic concept is this orphanage for folks that are actually. Tell us more about the basic concept. What I'm, what I'm gonna ask eventually is, and eventually being right now, it turns out, like <laughs> that was an emotional roller coaster. Right. Why? Like what? What? What drives you to do it? Why? Why do? Why do the the orphanage? Or why, why do you? that that yeah. zone there? Yeah. Um, great question. Um, and it's worth asking too from a uh, from a career standpoint because it's really not a lucrative path that I've charted. Uh, if, if anybody is thinking about going to political media, let me assure you, you will make far more money if you pick conservative or progressive. You pick it hard and you make a significant portion of every show you do how our team is even more right than we already thought and the other team is even more evil than you suspect. You will make a lot of money if you're, if you're even halfway talented because uh, tribalism and hate mongering sell really well and they're also very easy to market. Uh, it's, I, I know where the conservatives hang out. They hang out on all the conservative shows. I know where the progressives hang out. They hang out on all the progressive shows. It's pretty easy to reach them. It's very difficult to find nuanced people that don't like to affiliate with parties. There's no, there's no like, Hey, all the independents listen to this thing. That's not a, they're, they're all over the place. Um, so it's not a very direct, um, way of building a career. Uh, but I do think, um, if I can get slightly self-righteous for a moment, I think there needs to be people not doing that. I think that political discourse in the country is so awful right now that we need to have people that are intentionally avoiding that blatant partisanship and trying to inject some substance and some humanity into the conversation. Uh, I think how I wound up there is that uh, I have sort of been politically amphibious throughout a, much, a lot of my life. Uh, and that makes it very difficult for me to hate people. So I'm from Oklahoma, which is the holster of the Bible Belt. Uh, it would, if if you could reanimate Reagan's corpse, hundred percent vote for Reagan's corpse tomorrow. Uh, they would they would do an election early to vote for Reagan's corpse. Very very conservative part of the country that I love. I'm not one of these guys that left Middle America and and now talks about how wonderful it is that I escaped all the bigots and yokels and I should have been born in France, but by some cosmic fluke, I was born in this backwater. But I don't think that at all. I love the people I grew up with. I love my family. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Oklahoma that are very conservative. They're very good people. Uh, I, being a comedian, have been living in bright blue cities, uh, if not outright Europe, uh, for my adult life. So I've lived in Washington, D.C. I lived in New York. Uh, I lived in Scotland for a while, which is basically socialist Texas with funny accents. And uh, so uh, as a result, I have many, many friends that are flaming progressives who I love and I think are very good people. And so the way that my mind has been able to put these two worlds together has been to go, okay, I am going to make a division in my mind between what people are trying to do and the methodology they're using to achieve that goal. And I'm going to judge people on their goal. I'm not going to judge people on how they how they do it. I'll fight them on how they do it if it's a dumb idea. And I think we need to. But I'm fighting the idea. I'm not fighting the person. So 
Um, just, just to piss off a bunch of your listeners real quick. I think raising the minimum wage is a very bad idea. I think it's counterproductive. I think it will lead to higher unemployment and I think it would hurt poor people more than it would help poor people. But I understand the people that disagree with me on that are coming from a genuinely good place. The people that want to increase the minimum wage very much want to help poor people. And I am happy to engage in that debate with them as a good faith argument of, hey, we're all on team helping poor people. Let's figure out how we can uh, how we can make each other smarter. Uh, because <clears throat> at the very least, there's probably some stupid stuff I think that you might be able to help me on. Um, so I kind of temperamentally arrived at this sort of um, common humanity position, I think, somewhat through that. It also helps that I have worked uh, in politics and I have worked in partisan media. Uh, when I worked on the Hill, I was a Democrat. I worked for um, two members of Congress that were blue dogs before they were hunted to extinction. Uh, for anybody unfamiliar with this, blue dogs were, were the conservative or moderate block of the Democratic Party uh, that more or less got wiped out by the Tea Party. Uh, ironically, after I worked there, I got hired by Fox Business uh, because they found out that I'm a comedian and I like Milton Friedman. And they were like, holy crap, there's like there's three people in the country that are funny that like Milton Friedman and you're one of them? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, do you want to come right on the show called The Independence? It's independent. And I went, sure. So I did that. And um, while I really enjoyed that, I will say um, partisan media left a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I have no desire to work in partisan media again. And so tack pretty hard away from that. Uh, I, I, I just sort of now naturally bristle at groupthink, tribalism, and partisanship. And as a result, I try to go towards systems, fixing things, and ideas, and 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 try to do that. And uh, uh, the political orphanage is for people that are in a similar boat. I find that the temperamental commonality um, tends to be people that have friends they disagree with and are baffled why other people can't have friends they disagree with. Uh, it tends to be people that are either independents like me, maybe they're a Republican, but their family's Democrat or vice versa, and they want to have a good conversation and they feel really iced out from the talking heads. And then they find me and they're like, oh, this guy is actually living in the universe I live in. And, and so I'm making the show for them. Cool. Uh, it is, well, first I'm just going to say thank you. Uh, it is very needed. Um, as I look at culture, uh, the political culture where, where we're at as a, as a country. I just kind of scratched my head. Like, I don't, I'm not quite sure how we got here and I'm not quite yeah. sure how we get out of it. Our son is 15. Uh, and, and thinking of, you know, that generation coming into this, like what, what are the best steps moving forward? Do you see us moving past this to a point where the political orphanage is the common culture? <laughs> Man, that'd be Wouldn't great. It? I would sure love that if I became the, I don't know, uh, Tim Ferriss of Pol whatever, t pick your, your uh, benign multimillionaire. That'd be great. Uh, so I, I've got a couple of thoughts. Um, the good news is that I think um, politics is not actually as bad as we think it is. And the reason I say that is that the rancor I find tends to be mostly online. I have uncomfortable conversations and occasionally mean conversations with people in person, but at a far lower rate. Uh, I find that most people have enough civility in them that they're not just going to launch an attack on you. It's, it does happen sometimes if I bring up the minimum wage thing, somebody thinks I'm evil and then I'm trying to you know, herd orphans into a coal mine or something. Uh, but, but generally speaking, people will at least be polite enough to re refrain from doing that. Uh, the other nice thing too is 
folks like me kind of live in a, in a bubble, uh, in an echo chamber. That is to say, um, journalists and politicians. Uh, uh, journalists and politicians, and I'm going to, I'm kind of like a three beers in, turn your head and squint journalist. Like, I'm not really a journalist, but if you're a little drunk, I'm a journalist. Um, so I'm going to lump myself in that category for a moment. Um, we tend to be um, far more ideological and far more ideologically consistent and ideologically sorted than the broader population. And we also tend to be way more politically engaged than the broader population. So what that means is when you're talking to anybody in a newsroom or in a congressional office, chances are if they are a Republican, they are a conservative Republican with consistently conservative views. And if they're a Democrat, they are a liberal Democrat with consistently progressive views. That doesn't actually bear out statistically when you get into the rest of America. Uh, most people are not thinking about politics on a day-to-day basis. It's not first and foremost in their mind. They're thinking about rock climbing or mowing their yard or their 401k, which they should be. We live in a republic. We're not meant to be living in a day-to-day political fest. We're, we're meant to be able to enjoy our lives and do things. And uh, that's kind of the point. Um, and then they're also, they tend to be much more, um, the broader public tends to be much more scattered ideologically as well, where if you grab just a random guy from West Virginia, you would find that statistically a random dude in West Virginia is probably more socially conservative than the Democratic Party, but probably likes unions and, and likes the idea of FDR government programs. And you'd find that uh, if you take a Republican congressman, they're going to be really strong on gun rights. If you take literally an average Republican, not even a Democrat or an independent, just an average Republican, you would find that they are in favor of the Second Amendment, but they think that there should be certain restrictions in place to keep crazy people from getting guns. And uh, and they're, they're more in the middle than we would think. Um, so I think that, that that already is a little bit of a uh, an overinflated element going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it will get better for a. I think it might get worse. I think it will eventually get better, long term, long arc. I think it'll get better because I think a lot of what's happening right now is that technolo- uh, technology has far outpaced uh, our, our cultural ability to adapt to it, um, uh, and and so we're kind of dealing with that in in the same way that when the printing press came out it just blasted apart society in medieval Europe for good, ultimately for good. But if we were living when the printing press came out and we happen to be lucky enough to be lords, we would not be fans of this development. We would find that it was ripping society apart. Uh, and uh, I think that's happening to some extent. And I think eventually we will get there. And I, I find anecdotally that that's already happening. Like I, I argue online so much less than I did um, maybe six years ago. I really have not regularly engaged in arguments since 2012. Uh, because I realized I was losing friendships over it and it was just a waste of my time. Uh, and, and sometimes somebody will troll me and I'll respond, but generally I'm pretty good at going, I'm not going to spend the next hour arguing with at Lord ass Raptor hat two thirty eight As I sit on a toilet, this is not a good use of my time. I could go do something better. I think a lot of people are arriving at that conclusion. And in fact, I think most people are because Twitter's not emblematic. Um, I'm also heartened in that. I think the commentariat that I'm a part of. Uh, is broadly favoring electoral reform that is nonpartisan that would, to a great extent, mitigate the rancor happening within the political class, namely ranked choice voting. Uh, most people I know in political media are in favor of ranked choice voting or something akin to it, approval voting, something like that, uh, which I won't go in, into great detail on at this moment, but suffice to say the current system we have with closed primaries and first-past-the-post polls is a system that sort of automatically and um, without direction exacerbates extremism in both parties uh, because uh, in, in primaries, the activists show up. Uh, 
So the Democrats are picking their most progressive candidate rather than somebody that that represents Democrats as a whole, certainly not somebody who represents the whole district. Ditto with Republicans. They're picking the most conservative candidate. About a third of us are independents that aren't even participating in this process at all. And we have to choose between the extreme Republican and the extreme Democrat. And, and really, the current system doesn't do a good job of representing people. But I think that that is broadly understood by a lot of people in the commentariat. Uh, and there have been political reforms um, that are embracing that. Maine has embraced ranked choice voting. New York City just did it. Alaska did it. Those are all things which I think have a mitigating effect on the polarization happening because it sort of limits artificial extremism and does better for arriving at consensus candidates. Um, so I, I think that there, there is reason to be optimistic in, in those <coughs> regards. And I, I think we will eventually get there. I don't know if you heard the dogs blow up in the background there for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I've got, I've got my dog in here. He's being good right now, but he'll occasionally just whine and get angry that I'm not playing Frisbee with him. And then I'll, I'll have to duck out of the interview. So everybody listening, Romeo, uh, Romeo said, hello. I'm not sure what set him off, but, uh, so Andrew, as, as, I'm, as he probably, he's probably in favor of ranked choice. Well, voting. I, I, See, even the dogs are getting he in gets on pretty it. excited about the, about, about how we vote electoral reform. Dogs love electoral reform. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So okay, can I add a couple of quick things, Todd, before, uh, before we move of, on on of that? Course, Just of course, of course. When it comes to that political partisanship, um, a, a couple of tools that have been extremely helpful to me in my personal life that I will uh, confer to your listeners that will help you um, both be able to respond to the irritating partisans in your life and be able to limit some of um, the innate groupishness that we all have. Two, two things that we should do on our end to not be dickheads. Mm. When you're talking about the other party, however you want to define that, the, the group that you are least um, least associated with politically, when you're talking about them, rather than picturing the bottom 10% of degenerate jerks, picture the top 10% of smart, good people, because there is a spectrum. And in our country where you've got like 100 million people in both of the two major parties, there's a wide range of people. There's some really good people in the Republican and Democratic parties. There are some really bad people in the Republican and Democratic parties. And I think that we would all have better conversation if we just started from a presumption of goodness, which is the next thing you can do when you're talking to somebody. I think you should assume they're probably reasonably intelligent and have good motivations until they indicate otherwise. So if they say, I hate America and I want it to fail so we can rebuild a socialist utopia, light into them. Or if they say, you know, I'm a bigot and I just hate brown people, light into them. But conversely, if they're like, well, I think immigration restricts the blah, okay, like engage with them in good faith. Uh, assume that you are not psychic and the, that you are not able to peer into their dark heart. They are probably telling you something at face value. And then the other thing you can do is when somebody says something that you really take umbrage with, um, chances are you're not going to argue them. Uh, it's very, it's actually very rare to argue somebody into submission. Uh, people do not like going, ah, oh, you're right. I'm a moron. I guess I'm wrong. I'm, I've come around to your side because I'm a blithering idiot. That doesn't happen. The best you're going to do is you're going to give them pause and maybe they will mitigate their opinion somewhat. I think when I rant about the minimum wage, what's, I, I don't think people on the other side for me are going to be opposed to the minimum wage, but what they will start doing is going, well, he is right that in certain instances, it would be bad. We shouldn't, there are certain situations where, you know, we, we don't want to make it too high. Maybe we make it more geographically varied. And I'm like, that's great because you've just, I've strengthened your policy position. You're now, even though you're still further away from where I want to be, you're, you've, I, I have helped you identify the bad things in your policy. And I want you to do the same thing for me. 
Uh, and so um, you're not probably not going to argue with people. I, I think a better tack a lot of the time is just to try and understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And and they say, you know, I think we should have an $80 minimum wage. What I should do, rather than snorting and laughing and then throwing my, my Milton Friedman down and going, you're an idiot, read this book, is I should go, that's fascinating. How did you arrive at that? I, I have a very different perspective that I'm coming from. I'd like to know how you got to where you're at. Can you walk me through that? And then ask, what am I missing here? Uh, and repeat back. It sounds like you're saying this. Do I understand you correctly? And do your best job, do your best job to intelligently and eloquently summarize what the other person is saying. Because people, it's really important to people that they are heard and they are heard in good faith. And you will buy a lot of social cachet if you can do that. Uh, and then the other thing I'd say is we, we need to keep in mind we're, we're wrong about something. I, I think I'm probably wrong about maybe 30% of the stuff I currently believe. I just don't know what part. Uh, and so it requires me talking to people and them pointing out um, things that I am wrong about. And and I uh, what, what I'm beginning to develop on my end is getting better at, at noticing when I have cognitive dissonance, which is a very unpleasant feeling, but going, huh, this thing you're saying makes me feel very uneasy about this thing I believe. And just kind of putting a pin in that and going, all right, that might be something to come back to because it might be that I've got my bearings wrong. Uh, and and uh, knowing that people you disagree with, we need them. Um, uh, echo chambers and vacuums breed stupidity. Uh, they, that, that's where bad ideas get amplified. You don't want that in life. You certainly don't want that in politics. And so we, we need to be moving towards a system where we look at progressives and conservatives as in, in independence as um, a cooperative a productive intellectual, um, I don't know what to call it. Like battle's not the right word. Exercise mm-hmm. where we we are going to sharpen each other in the hope of amplifying the greater good. So I'm reminded of the book Radical Candor. I don't know if you've read that or not. Um, Kim, Kim I have Scott, not, but it sounds uh, good and and it's business based. But essentially, this this concept that you're talking about, like listening to understand, like like having the discussion. Mm-hmm. And if somebody, say you and I were discussing something and you disagreed with me and pointed out the flaws uh, and you've missed this, if I'm listening back, it's going to strengthen whatever my idea is, right? Because I can clean up those edges. Um, But And we don't have time to get into the whole group think and tribalism, but I think there's we're, we're just innately, it seems, unwilling to do that. We listen to respond. And unfortunately, a lot of times we don't listen and we just wait to respond. And so there's yeah. there's absolutely no communication happening in that. A hundred percent. You're you're dead right about that. Uh, it it is both useful to us epistemologically to try and understand where the other person's coming from. It is also more efficacious in converting that person um, uh, uh, by by engaging with them in good faith. Um, a, a guy that I'm friendly with. Uh, I don't know if he'll own me as a friend. I'll own him as a friend. Peter Bogosian. He wrote a book called uh, How to Have Impossible Conversations and one of the um, tools that he has in that book that I also find very useful is you can argue with people. Uh, and by the way, we need to argue about this stuff. Like, I, I don't think the, the right way to handle this is just to shrug and say, agree to disagree when we're talking about things where people die. We need to argue about these things. But one of the things you can do that will really help lubricate that conversation is the following phrase. Uh, interesting. Well, how do we handle X? So for example, I'll, I'll, I'll piss off the other half of your listeners. Uh, I thought building a wall along along the Mexican border was a really dumb idea for Trump. I think that was a $6 billion subsidy to Mexican ladder companies. I don't think it would have accomplished anything other than waste my tax dollars. Really dumb idea, right? Now, that being said, if I say that to somebody in favor of the wall, I've just pissed them off. 
that maybe they'll laugh at my joke, which I stole from PGR work, by the way. Uh, but but they're they're um, probably not going to be very efficacious. So rather than me saying, "Hey, moron," uh, you know, most illegal immigrants came here legally and just overstayed their visa. The wall wouldn't affect the law. That you, you've lost the person. So a way you can handle it is going. Interesting. Well, what do we do about most of the illegal immigrants that just overstayed their visa? What do we do about that? And what you're signaling is. Uh, you and I are on the same team solving a common problem here. And I am posing a solution to you as a member of my team, as opposed to saying you words, what do you do about this? Because then you're on trial. Uh, and another thing you can do that I learned from Peter, which is a great thing you can do in your conversations and uh, don't lie, but fortunately most people are pretty decent is when it starts to get heated, just pause and say, I can tell it's very important to you to help people, or I can tell it's very important to you to be a good person. Noting that then whatever you want to say, Right. The reason you're saying that is you are you're signaling to them, you are not on trial. We're talking about the wall. We're talking about minimum wage. I want you to know, I already think you're a good person, and the outcome of this conversation does not affect my judgment of you. You've already won. I already think you're a good guy. And that gets them off the hook where they no longer feel like they're having their identity attacked by engaging in this conversation with you. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and being careful not to to phrase it in such a way that the person isn't being attacked. They don't feel like mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an affront to them, but maybe questioning the idea or, or the, the subject matter, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we're, we're running out of time as we seek to land this plane. Uh, what is one, call it an important or an impactful question that you would leave with our listeners to ponder? What should we be, what should we be thinking about? You know, I'll, I'll leave your listeners with this. Who's somebody in your life that you could do a small, kind gesture for today that would make them happy? Because I suspect there is a neighbor or a barista or a coworker that would have a demonstrably better day if you just called them and said how much you like them. That's an awesome question. And it ties back to what you were talking about earlier, the day when you felt like you hadn't done anything, but you'd reached out to how many how many loved ones and, and think of the value <laughs> was, that was a you lot. added. Be, being an extrovert with an internet connection, I was doing a lot of Zoom conversations during the, the pandemic. The value you add just by reaching out to somebody and saying, hey, I was thinking of you today. Uh, it's it's yeah. immense. So cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for being here. Say for our listeners that want to that wanna connect more, get involved with you, um, become part of the orphanage, the political orphanage, what's, what's the best way, what's their best next step to take? I'd say the, the best thing you can do is uh, check out the political orphanage, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you'll find it there. And um, you can jump in on the various topics that we're doing. Uh, if, if you were like, I really like that guy, but I hate politics, then I would advise you to uh, read my book, Inappropriately Human, 21 Short Stories, which is not, it's mostly jokes and rocket ships. There's really not a lot of politics in it, but I, but I think the podcast is probably the way to go. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I've, I've loved this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you, you Todd. Hey, to our listeners, uh, remember what, whatever grand vision you've been given, whatever dream God has put on your heart, remember, remember, you can. Until next time, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful, and live life strong. Peace to you. Well, thank you so much for listening. For even more on turning trials into triumphs and seeking and embracing success, go to toddhalls.life. That's toddhalls.life. 
and I look forward to serving you. Until next time, be strong, be bold, be humble, stay healthy, stay hopeful. Peace to you.